This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Hello there. It's Jamila Jamil. Are you by any chance listening to this podcast promo while out on a walk? If so, good for you. That's going to make both your mind and your body feel better. On my podcast, I Weigh, this month, we're going to be exploring mental health and talking to amazing guests about other things that you can do to make yourself feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. and welcome to Unspooled Bonus Reel. This is one of our mini episodes where we are interviewing a filmmaker, an actor, a talent, a brain that we really admire to ask them what three films they think should be added to the next round of the American Film Institute Top 100 list. Our guest for this episode is a director I really, really adore. Her name is Lorene Scafaria. She directed the films Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. She did Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. And she did this year's Hustlers, a movie that... I have seen several times, and it is just a whole bunch of wow. Lorene, welcome to Unspooled. We are so honored to have you here to talking about the AFI list as a person who I think has been making really phenomenal films for several years. You've been making great things. You've been writing great things. I think you have such an interesting perspective, and I want to hear what your perspective is on this list and what we need to add to it. My gosh, I, I didn't realize that they hadn't updated it in this long and there have been twelve years incredible movies in the in the tens. There have been <laughs> really great films. So um I I probably went further back than than recent history. There's so many incredible movies in the last nine years though. I probably put more nostalgic names on here than like I'm saying there will be blood, the master, <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, there's so many great recent films, Moonlight, all these movies that probably deserve to be on there. I'm not gonna talk about it, even though <laughs> they deserve to be on there. I almost thought you might pick The Master because I know you're a fan of that. I'm a huge fan of The Master and and Phantom Thread. I've, I watch that now every time it's on TV. I mean, he's obviously the greatest, so yeah, I can't, I can't help it. The Master, I could talk about it. I'm still not going to. I'm still going to go further back into into my childhood maybe a little more. That's fair because I feel like I see a bit of the master even in Hustlers, you know? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I mean the dynamic between that mentor-mentee, that friendship, that's uh, that love story between two people that, you know, when the relationship is kind of stronger than you have with like your parents or your children or your 
partner that I was really interested in that. Yeah, that power struggle and that dynamic between two people. But so then let's talk about it. Like, let, give me your number one pick. What needs to be added to the AFI Top 100? I'm going to say The Princess Bride. <gasps> You're a person after my own heart. I love this movie. I well, think it's perfect. You know, it's Rob Reiner who is, I think, made – I think he's himself has made three of the top five movies of all time. I do. He's um, underappreciated for, for his effect on, on cinema. It's but, true. What would your runners-up be from him? Oh, I mean, when Harry met Sally and this is Spinal Tap. Princess Bride is, you know, it's William Goldman. I mean, it's a, a perfect script. The cast, it's so unexpected. It's so delightful. It's its its perfect scene after perfect scene. So many iconic moments in it. Um, I think it fails the Bechdel test, which is a bummer, but <laughs> it is it is in spite of that. Uh, I think it's still a perfect movie. I agree. And I think it hits so many genres. You know, it just yeah. crosses them all really perfectly. It crosses fantasy. It crosses romance. It crosses comedy. Yeah. It is an everything movie. It's adventure. It's it's all of it. It's a it's like a true adventure story. And it's so funny. Um, Wallace Shawn is so funny. He's so naturally funny, but it's such a perfect role for him. And um, Andre the Giant. I mean, I was a kid who grew up on <laughs> Wrestling, <laughs> so um, you're a true Jersey kid. Absolutely. If it wasn't George the Animal Steel, I I am also in love with uh, Andre the Giant. So, um, but Mandy Patinkin, I mean, ridiculous. Those three people, those three characters. Uh, yeah, every every speech, every. I mean, the the fight that the two of them have, the sword fight. I mean, it's like it's incredible, and. Um, and Carrie Elwes was underappreciated in that too. Robin Wright is kind of our first time really seeing her. It's just extraordinary. Exactly. Like we have kind of this Carrie Elwes is riffing off of the character that Kevin Klein is sort of – or they're all riffing off this yeah. like basic Douglas Fairbanksian, Errol yes. Flynnian model who's also – we don't have like Robin Hood or anything on the list. Yeah. But that mustachioed, handsome hunk. Yeah. And he was uh, mysterious at that moment because you didn't know – who he was, if he was the Dread Pirate Robert. She didn't know exactly who it was. I remember when I was a kid, literally not knowing that it was him. And I I shame myself for that because um, I genuinely was like, oh, it was him the whole time. It was Wesley. Um, but, yeah, and the framing of it too, the storytelling of it, this grandfather telling his grandson the story of it and – and this kid who's like afraid it's a kissing book and he doesn't want to hear about that, but he does. And the moments that we snap in and out of it, it's it's really, it's incredible. It's beautiful. You know, I've always quietly thought that if we were going to take one film from all of cinema, and you know, it's not, because Citizen Kane is, of course, at the top of the list. Mm. Um, That's great. In terms of, you know, like of the <laughs> AFI list is like, great, monumental, tons of effect on the pop culture, tons of effect on cinema itself, on style and technique. But as a totally different question, if you're going to take one film and just use it to show an alien what what was cinema, like mm. what did cinema do, I think The Princess Bride is a perfect pick. Yeah, I think especially, I mean, if you're going to look at screenwriting too, if you're, I mean, you know, no, uh, again, Rob Reiner did uh, brought it to life and all these actors, but what William Goldman has done for writing is extraordinary and he really is the voice of it. And I think that's what, you know, as you look at all the great movies that have been made, I feel like the writing is really what stands out and often an unsung hero of of films because 
because it's easy to, you know, look at the visuals and, and, and look at the stars and everything. But I, I feel like what William Goldman did there was like teach us writing with a, in his script. He really did. I mean, he certainly actually taught us writing with his other books, but but he really did teach writing with that. I mean, what do you feel like you learned from it? Because you started as a writer. I did. Um, it perfectly juggles a lot of different characters. You know, it still has that like hero's journey quality to it, but it, so many of them have their own journeys. Um, so it, it, it plotted that really well. It showed this like, um, you have like, you know, good and evil, but they're they're a complex, you know, they're not, even the evil is, is its own form of evil. And um, I mean, I think he just brought so much humor to everything and so much heart to everything. And the relationships, the, the, the sort of interpersonal dynamics between people is really what I think he, when he shines. Um, but yeah, that the framing device, the, the grandfather, all of that was, um, it's so smart. It's such a well-told story. It's also like it's scenes, you know, and I think that's that's what he did so brilliantly was create these scenes and these iconic moments. And, of course, what Rob Reiner did with them was extraordinary. But, you know, the duel um, facing off with cups of, uh, you know, Iocane powder. <laughs> that was like – that was next level. I mean, it really is so extraordinary how um, um, seeing characters – uh, react, you know, but but really the scenes and these sort of cameo moments and, you know, um, uh, Billy Crystal's, uh, you know, <laughs> um, cameo moment. It's it's such a brilliant little tiny stop on the way, you know, on the road movie. So, I mean, as a person who I can't help but keep writing road movies in a, in a way, even, you know, Hustlers is a they're in cars for much of it, and, <laughs> and depending on who's behind the wheel, it, there's a has a lot to do with it. But um, and how nice the car is! How nice the car is exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, as someone who has written a couple of road movies, and um, you know, Nick and Nora's was trying to be uh, the worst kind of road movie in Manhattan, um, the last place you should be doing a road movie. Um, Seeking a friend very directly was. Uh, the meddler even was in in a way, you know, the um, mom cruising around Los Angeles, and um, but yeah, I, uh, Princess Bride as as that adventurous, you know, they're they're on foot, they're in boats and everything, but in a way, it's a it's a journey and a, and a road movie, and um, and so them going from A to B and all the stops along the way and all the characters that they meet along the way is really I, fascinating. I think you're exactly right, and I think it's a really perfect example of. Taking something that is sort of seen as a formula, you know, the hero's journey or the mm. epic quest and figuring out how to make it yours. Yeah. You know, because we're in such a period of like taking ideas we know and people even just like subscribing too much to a template, like yeah. save the cat or something. Yeah. And figuring out how to take something known and still make it personal. You know, yeah. So, yeah, it's just. They'll remake this. I mean, they are going to remake it. Oh, God, so do you I think don't so. I think they just announced it the other day, no, which no, was. No, 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 no. This one's hard for me. I mean, you know, I get it, but this one feels very, I don't know, singular. And um, and it's that tone. The tone of it is what's so perfect. And it it feels like if people are trying to do that for a 2019 audience, that somehow that tone is going to get skewed. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I don't yeah. think they could capture the purity of it. No, you know, it's it too pure. To wink. Mm -hmm. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard... 
I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Well, that is a solid, solid, solid first pick. I mean, I hope they hear you because it shocks me that this film is not on the list. It's shocking. It is shocking. Um, you ready for your number two? I think so. I think so. Uh, I This has to be because they haven't updated it because the social network would, I think, undoubtedly be on the list. I can't imagine that doesn't crack the top 100. I mean, why? You think because of its news relevance today? It's or like- perfect. It's a perfect movie. It's, uh, yes, it's, it's, it's the movie of today. It just is. I mean, it certainly is resonating right now um, with what Facebook is <laughs> known for at this moment. But it's so much more about the internet and its effect on us socially. And uh, so to to turn Mark Zuckerberg into a character, um, which he is, of course, but uh, to create this person who, this opening breakup scene, this like five or six minute breakup scene in which this guy's just called an asshole and, and dumped, and that being the impetus of <laughs> this sort of... Um, this kind of revenge, you know, this creation of face mash. And um, it's so incredible. It's such incredible writing. I mean, obviously Aaron Sorkin, obviously what David Fincher did and and the score and uh, unbelievable score, unbelievable. The sound of it is as much the storytelling as as the writing itself. And it was so fun to hear Aaron Sorkin, like classic Sorkin dialogue delivered just through incredibly intelligent uh, college students. I thought that was such a, that's such a that's already a twist on on all the other you know Sorkin movies and and, and shows. I feel like that automatically was uh, refreshing and and why that opening breakup scene is so um, interesting. And you just see this person who he doesn't have what it takes. He is ill equipped for these social interactions to sit across from his girlfriend and to to talk about these parties that the, you know, um, these, um, these clubs and to want to be a member of these clubs and, uh, the exclusivity of it to sort of see that and to, to turn it into something. To get the psychology of these people who, the people with the same personality template are sort of conquering little pockets of the world. Yeah, we have like 12 guys in Silicon Valley to thank for everything that's <laughs> happening to young girls and boys. And Thank might not be the word I'd use. All of us. <laughs> yes, uh, thank might not be. Um, blame, but, but the idea that they've determined so much of how we interact with each other. Twitter is a place where we all uh, give our thoughts in short form <laughs> bursts and and um, everyone can read them, and it's so strange. I mean, if there was a, if there was a wall, you know, in a town square, I don't know how many people would even choose to write on it. I, I really don't. But you, you put it in this place, and now it's there forever, and um, it's kind of incredible. So Facebook being this place that, you know, for me, I remember joining because I was like, oh, I want to 
see what the people I went to high school with are up to. That was incredibly alluring. That was, um, you know, I moved 3,000 miles away from them. I didn't go to a reunion. <laughs> um, you know, I was like very curious. And so that was my reasons for it. And I, I quit recently. I, I think my page is just still active. I think they're active forever, um, even though – you know, I'm not technically on it anymore. How was it to quit? Because I want to too, but it's it's the high school friends that I'm terrified that I'll never find them again. I'm just choosing Instagram instead because somehow that feels like less obtrusive to my life. And, uh, you know, I, I I took Twitter off of my phone. I quit Facebook. I, I like this, this – I guess I like pictures more than words in a way as far as like, oh, I'll, I'll take this uh, photo album, you know, this like kind of – online digital photo album of mine and um, most, I mean, I mostly imagine, pictures of dogs. <laughs> like for a creative person, there are so many opinions on Twitter about film and what film should be that I can imagine trying to be a creative person, trying to write a script, hearing so many people's thoughts can be cre- like paralyzing. Yeah, and you certainly can't write that way, or at least I think some movies are really trying to write that way, taking the algorithms and and turning them into dialogue and taking catchphrases and just applying them to everyone. It's a little hard because, you know, yeah, we all talk the same. We all have this, we're all having a collective experience. We're all reacting to everything collectively. That's so strange. Um, and it's not just, you know, did you see Game of Thrones last night, um, which is already a form of pressure, you know, and with spoilers out there. But it, it's it's um, it's beyond that. It's our own it's our it's our own relationships with ourselves. It's our relationships with our identities. It's our it's like the yearbook staff has taken over. And if you don't live your life out loud, if you're not an extroverted person, if you're not if you you know, if you're private at all, obviously, but it's. It's impossible. It's impossible to navigate. I'm so grateful I wasn't raised in this age. I find it impossible. I don't know how they do it. And yet, you know, there's some, obviously there's positive, uh, there's a positive effect. It's just, it feels like the experiment failed. It does feel like that. And it feels like for a little while there was this hope that the experiment was succeeding because it felt like, oh, look, this is a place where there's unification. There's a place where people who felt alone no longer feel alone. And I don't mean just interacting with each other. I mean, I'm like this, and I don't know anyone like this. That was the hope of it anyway, was that it was going to be like, you know, you don't need to travel around the world to understand each other. You can look online and and see how this person lives their lives, and isn't that incredible? And um, I don't know. I don't know if, you know – the information superhighway, as it was known. I don't know if information should travel on a superhighway. I'm not <laughs> sure. I'm not sure about that. Like, The Social Network is the one film that I actually really want a sequel to, mm. you know? Because yeah. it's it was a period piece when it was made, in a way, uh, just for, by a couple years. And in the time since it came out, the world has changed again around that film yeah. and what Mark Zuckerberg represents. I think Eighth Grade was the sequel to The Social Network. Um <laughs> I know him who <laughs> made the movie, but I um, I do think that. I think that I don't really care what those guys are up to anymore. I don't. I don't care what Zuckerberg's up to. You know, I care more about the impact on us all. And and so I, I think that was its own – that was the sequel to it. But I, I know what you mean. I mean, it is it – is, it, it's damning. It's, you know, you, you – 
it's remarkable what took place. I, I think it was also, I mean, th- to get back to the movie itself, obviously, I, I mean, it, it's kind of just peak Fincher, peak Sorkin, peak Eisenberg, <laughs> peak Garfield, you know. We we got to see Rooney Mara. I, I felt like that was my introduction to her it anyway. It was mine too. And it's yeah. still, I think, my favorite Rooney Mara, to be honest. I mean, she's great always, but I, I to see that female character even, because Sorkin doesn't often give them the same. I mean, you know, in his shows he does, obviously, but for some reason, the films, I I feel like that was a very strong female character for him to write and and a perfect vessel for Sorkin also through that character. I mean, I I took from this movie, I did, because I I found the, the two depositions um, to be such an incredible framing device for the telling of the story. To go from that breakup scene to this this long walk across campus back to his dorm. And that's where we hear that unbelievable score, just like the tension of that underneath, you know, is like, it's so it's so minimal and it's such a perfect theme and it sounds like the future, but it's uh, timeless. You know, there's something about it that was so incredible, but his long walk back and which he's just stewing and then bringing it back to the room where, then we're hearing voiceover, but it's what he's writing, you know? And so, and then, you know, his friends start showing up, Eduardo shows up and, and they're, you know, he's creating this thing that, that then goes viral. I mean, it really is an unbelievably structured script. It's really remarkable. And, um, so that, that for me is there's, there's so much to say. And then for it to end with him hitting refresh, you know, oh, over and over. I know it's oh. incredible. It's and then incredible. in that time since then learning how they've programmed us to hit refresh yeah. or programmed us to keep scrolling, like them talking about in, Sil- in Silicon Valley, training our brains to need constant, yeah. constant refreshing the way that he does, yeah. the way that we see him. And I don't even think when the movie came out, I was so aware of of the design of apps to make us addicted in that way. Yeah, You know, we're just sort of like, oh, it's sad for him. He's refreshing. Look at him go. And then to really – I've been afraid, I think, to watch this movie since it came out. I haven't. And you're making me really want to. Oh, yeah. I don't know. It's it's just a historical work at this point. Yeah, and we have all these movies, you know, for example, about like the Vietnam War. Yeah. And a lot of that argument is like, well, we need the movie to commemorate the fact that the movie that the that the experience even happened. Yeah. To which I feel like this is our one of our generation's wars. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's uh it arguably is the biggest impact. I mean, I felt like, you know, I'm old, <laughs> so I'm like 41. I felt like we didn't have anything till 9/11. It did feel like there was almost nothing, you know? And then 9-11 and the internet. And, uh, you know, those two moments uh, uh, impacted everything, I think, that we're experiencing now. And it's scary, the idea of making a 9-11 movie. It's scary. I, th- I-, I thought, again, eighth grade was was incredibly brave to to try to tell the story of a 13-year-old girl trying to navigate this world right now. And um, But it it felt like there was a giant hinge, you know, and then a more insidious hinge, you know, something else that happened that um, that happened without us really knowing it. And and now we're just on apps talking about the apps. Now we're just on Twitter tweeting about tweets. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's, the snake eats its tail no matter what. So it's um, – I don't know how we come back from this. I really actually don't. I think – the experiment failed, and I'm and I'm genuinely not sure how we come back from this. Because I remember 
with everything going on in the past few years in our country. And, you know, and I should say there are some incredibly positive effects. Like I said, people realizing that they're not alone, but also the unification of certain communities and the strength in certain communities. And Oh, my gosh. I mean, at this point, I feel like the it's it's these like police videos and, and things like that that are that's the benefit of it at this point is sort of everyone collectively getting to point their fingers at something and say, you know, that's wrong. That's an injustice. So there's an there's some of that happening. And but even that I don't know, it's so noisy by now. And um, I, I just remember when talking to you know, older generations and them saying like, we've lived through times like this. We've lived through the sixties. We know what this is. And I, and you know, uh, nothing but respect to them, but, um, they haven't, they haven't lived through this. I haven't. I mean, I'm, I'm that generation that kind of straddles this time period. So like, I feel like if you were born, you know, between like, I don't know, 78 and 83 or something like that, you were not raised with it, but it's such a part of your life and, and now, you know, and, and that it's a very weird age to continue to grow with this, this phone. I wasn't attached to this four years ago. My 71 year old mother is on her phone all the time. (laughs) (laughs) My last movie was about my mom being, you know, having her relationship with her iPhone. It literally opened with my mother getting an iPhone and calling me on it all the time, (laughs) but also the relationship that she had with it. It was, um, in ways it's like a cure for loneliness, but it's also this, like, it's a new discovery for her. So we have so many different generations reacting and responding and, you know, my mom wondering how to take a selfie. And I'm like, oh my goodness, (laughs) it's a lot. It's a lot to unpack at any age. So I, um, I don't know how we come back from this. I mean, I've always thought that that generation you're describing right now, that kind of middle one, mm. you know, maybe even like pushing up to like the very early exes, mm. that their power in getting to see the world before and after and really understanding it is what makes them, I think, maybe the ultimate storytellers to explain what happened to us. Right. You know, like, like well, I'm Gen like, X, so I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Gen X, so I guess. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think just because we remember when, you know, but we don't, it wasn't like we were so far away from it that we weren't a part of it. When I was a freshman in college, um, uh, so I was, I was like a year younger than people, but but technically a freshman in college, um, I, I, I remember going like, I do this thing called email with my friend Kara and my friend Kara and I used email and it was the way that we kept in touch with each other. Like, that's crazy. That's crazy. I don't feel ancient, you know, but that's, that's wild. And so that's why even Hustlers could be this recent period piece because, you know, this list was re-upped in 2007. That, that was, that's when we start our story is 2007. It's a different time on earth, you know, and, um, that's true. Like we were just talking recently, we were doing American Graffiti, you know, a film made in the seventies about the sixties and it makes the sixties feel like a lifetime ago. And in so many ways, Hustlers is that same decade gap, but it also feels like a lifetime ago. I love American Graffiti that influenced Nick and Norris so much. Okay. Well, these are solid picks two for two. What do you got for us? Number three. I, I, Here's the truth. I want to talk about Dirty Dancing. I really do. But I'm going to talk about The Birdcage because 
The Birdcage. I think The Birdcage uh, is another perfect film. I also think Dirty Dancing is a perfect film. But, oh, this is hard. This is hard, you guys. Um, I'm curious to hear these arguments. For why both of them are perfect films. I mean... Maybe as you talk it out, you will decide which one you wait, pick. I'll get there. Okay. Okay. Well, listen, Dirty Dancing... <laughs> Dirty Dancing is a is a perfect film. It's scene after scene uh, of iconic moments. I think that's what is... Why Dirty Dancing has a, has a place, a special place in my heart, because I didn't just see it 65 times when I was a kid, <laughs> but but I rewatched it recently when my boyfriend wasn't home, and I was just like screaming out loud, like I was a child again. And my crush on Patrick Swayze has never gone away. Uh, my crush on Johnny Castle will never go away. <laughs> uh, the director of the film, um, Emil Artelino. Um, he made Dirty Dancing and then Sister Act, and then he died of AIDS uh, a, a year later. Oh, I didn't realize. So, because I was so, I rem- when I looked up Dirty Dancing recently, because I was like, who made this and why ha- has he not made anything since? Uh, I I saw that and I thought how tragic because it's it's really an unbelievably well directed movie. But um, yeah, it's just iconic scene after iconic scene. It it. It's uh, it's remarkable, but it it brings me to the birdcage, which is yeah. probably the reason that is probably the the number three. Um, Mike Nichols, I mean, one of our the greatest directors of all time. Elaine May wrote the script based on the Kaja Falls. Uh, it's um, it's just a it's like a play. It's like a perfect play that he turned into a piece of cinema. But which you would understand because you playwriting specifically is yeah, where you started writing. Yeah, I. I started writing plays. I mean, I was writing, I wrote screenplays. I put that in quotes. I wrote screenplays in like fourth and fifth grade. So I was always interested in movies, but I really found it through theater. And even finding that it was like really via David Mamet, um, being obsessed with the play, Glengarry Glenn Ross, and then seeing the movie Glengarry Glenn Ross and being like, oh my God, now I want to, I want to do all of this. I want to take plays and turn them into films. I, I even took films and tried to turn them into plays. I tried to put Shallow Grave up as a as a one act in my college. I'm, I'm very interested in the 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 melding of theater and, and film. But um, Which is so interesting because it seems like there's such this easy negative catchphrase people say, which is like, oh, it's just a filmed play. Like Yeah, but it's that's I mean, sure. Uh, and and obvious I mean I think right out of the gate Mike Nichols says, no, it's not, because he, like, brings you in this, like, incredible wonder. I don't even know what it is, a helicopter. I don't, I'm not even sure how he's how he captured this, but he, he, you know, brings us through Miami into this into this club and kind of this beautiful wonder and for the first time. And um, I think he's t- saying right then, this is not a, a play. Um, but then he also lingers and and rests on on characters and you you know are you see Robin Williams go through uh you know trying to explain this this moment of Madonna the Madonna you know like <laughs> and it's like just a, the camera just hangs on him and allows for these actors to have these brilliant moments and um but it it's the the writing of it is theater and and it's so contained and it's such a perfectly constructed story 
Um, and it's surprising to think back on how modern it felt telling that story in the 90s. Yeah. You know? It was. It was. It, and, I mean, to look at it now, it's strange how much time has passed. And and yet I don't, I don't know. I haven't really seen a piece of art like it. It had so much fun. And... And I, you know, in another way, maybe it wouldn't even be made today. I'm not, I don't even know. I'm not sure. Or how it would be made would be, like you said, like, you know, taking Twitter algorithms and trying to <laughs> type it into something, you know. I think it's such a beautiful relationship that Robin Williams and Nathan Lane's characters uh, have with each other. And they sign like a palimony uh, paperwork at, at some point because that that's how ahead of its time it was. It was before gay marriage was legal and that's insane um and to watch the two of them have this long-term relationship with each other that's so rooted in love but they're like opposites and and you know Nathan Lane's character is so outlandish and but the love is so perfect and 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 for the son to love them and and for for all the drama that unfolds in the movie is about these people trying to do right by each other and um, not hurt each other's feelings, and and yet they're hurt. They're hurting. You know, the son shows up and is saying, "This isn't possible. I can't present you as my family." And his father is so hurt by that, and and to see them all try to whip themselves into shape for this cover, you know, for them to you know, understand the motivations behind it while also being hurt. And every moment that you go, oh, I could hate the son for this, then he goes, forget it. I don't want to do this. And the father steps up and says, no, 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 this is right. So it, it's it's sort of this beautiful tug of war with characters who are all trying to do right by each other while not trying to compromise themselves. And yet, you know, the the situation is larger than them and it's it's politics and it's <laughs> it's people that are di- very different from them um showing up and 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 these two families interacting with each other it, it it is actually a story for now in a way it is a beautiful story for for right now um i mean what you're making me think of right now is how often in storytelling we think of you need conflict to make a movie, mm. and conflict is two people yelling at each other. Yeah. And the way you f- you frame Birdcage is it's a movie where the conflict comes from people trying to be nice to each other, which is completely different than how we usually imagine what good conflict is. That's why it's so beautiful to watch and such an incredible lesson because, um, you know, when I was writing The Meddler, that was an exercise in empathy because I made my mom the main character, and I made myself the side character. And... I was trying to think, you know, what is my mother like? You know, I think we people have seen the movies about overbearing moms, but they're often told from the kids' perspective. And and um, what's it like, you know, yes, oh, my mom's calling me. My phone's ringing. It's mom again. But what's it like to be her? What's it like to be the person who called five times and didn't get a call back? And the loneliness that is involved in that and, and, um, and her desire to put her love to a good place – and yet here she is trying to be good, but she's failing at it. And her daughter does love her, but is grieving. And it really is just about them grieving differently. And and um, and so, you know, I, I, I like 
uh, tension and drama that comes from that place. And we make mistakes too. And people, there's human error and, and you cross certain lines and you do things you shouldn't have done. And, um, so that happens of course, but I, I think the beauty of the conflict and the tension coming from them all just loving each other and being hurt by each other and, trying to take that love and do the right thing and trying to take that pain and do the right thing. And, um, and it's so funny and sweet and heartbreaking and, and, uh, and it's hilarious. And you're laughing at that Gene Hackman. You're laughing at him. <laughs> I mean, there, he has a monologue about foliage that I think is one of the funniest things on planet earth as he's, as he's putting everybody to sleep talking about, you know, the leaves and the red and the orange and <laughs> it's so funny um but the 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 joke of it of all of them you know trying to be themselves and then trying not to be themselves trying very hard to be other people because that's what's going to be acceptable um i think those are the themes that feel so ahead of its time and obviously it's based on something very old and or you know from the 70s and so um there's a you know a story in there already, but um, I think that's why when the movie ends, it's just over. There's nothing else you need to see besides Gene Hackman putting on that white dress and that wig and being snuck out of this club um, because they've gone through so much, and it's not like you're going to suddenly make these people realize everything that they've thought was different and. You know, it's 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 just that the the family that you've been watching all this time is they're free and they're you know there's they're all free because now everything's on the table and and they're all in it together in some way and the love of these two children and these families coming together. I mean, the, you know, very different families coming together. Um, I don't know; those themes are just so they're so relevant today. And that makes me think of your Christmas scene. Yeah, well, yeah, that's like a chosen family thing, you know, and I think that's, that's, uh, yeah, I, 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 I think of the 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 family that um, that Robin Williams and Nathan Lane formed, and um, they're they're it's it's a it's not the family dynamic that people are used to seeing. It's not, you know, the the husband and wife and the two kids and. Um, I, I was excited to show uh, uh, what it's like when, you know, you maybe don't get the family that you needed or, or wanted. And um, and the, the love that you can find with, like, a, a chosen family is, is just as beautiful and um, sometimes even more fulfilling. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love these choices. Oh, you thanks. have stuck up for so many things across the board that I feel like the list is a little bit short on, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I also, it's a shame that comedies can't be seen in this, in that way. I think often people assume they've been laughing during a movie or enjoying themselves in any way, that it's not a, a serious work. But, um, you know, I don't know if AFI will change that much. <laughs> well, we are working on it one podcast at a time. Oh, good luck. Thank and you. And you are working on it by making one film at a time. Oh, that's very nice. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you coming out. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. 